This week on A Lively Experiment, the governor says the state needs to get serious about climate change, ordering new directives over the next decade for electric vehicles. And the General Assembly is considering dozens of proposed changes to how our elections are run. We sit down with Rhode Island's Secretary of State to see which bills he is backing. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi, I'm John Hazenwhite, Jr. For over 30 years, A Lively Experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS. Joining us on the panel, URI political science professor, Emily Lynch. Ian Donis, political reporter for The Public's Radio. And Ken Block, founder of the nonprofit group, Watchdog RI. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lively. I'm Jim Hummel. Governor McKee announced this week that the state will ban the sale of all gasoline-powered vehicles by 2035. The aggressive schedule calls for 43% of all new sales to be electric, plug-in hybrid, or hydrogen-powered models by 2027. That number would increase to 68% in 2030 and 100% 12 years from now. Ian, this kind of came out of nowhere. It wasn't on my radar screen. And as usual, it's the execution. Sounds great in theory, but getting from here to there, particularly on charging stations, I think is going to be challenging. Yeah, I think people fall into two main camps about this, Jim. I had uh, the chance to talk with Governor McKee this week. He says, in his view, this is a no-brainer. This is where technology and transportation is headed and that it's important to do this for climate change, even if Rhode Island is the smallest state. On the other hand, we see how some of the Republicans in the legislature, like legislature like Brian Newberry, see this as being a, a heavy hand of big government, and they question if consumers will pay higher costs but this does seem to be the direction in which things are going. So I would expect we'll see more states go in this direction. As I had said, charging stations, it's kind of hard to find them these days. There are, there, uh, but we do see an increase in charging stations across the state. Um, but I agree with Ian that we're seeing this trend across the country um, where we have President Biden um, and his executive order to promote um, electric vehicles. We have the auto industry with their buy-in to, um, to create more um, electric vehicles. And uh, we see individual states like California, our neighbors, Massachusetts, we have Vermont, Connecticut looking at this as well. Um, so it, it makes sense. We have a climate initiative that, or, or an act that is was signed into law two years ago that if we really are serious about it, um, we need to see these changes. That said, we, you need public buy-in, right? And um, you look at the national polls, there was a poll uh, two, uh, a year ago, Pew Research Center found that um, a majority of Americans oppose uh, the, this phase out of gas powered vehicles. Um, but if you look at it, it's a partisan issue. So you break it down further and Democrats are actually in support of, of makes sense, right? That Democrats um, support this phase out nationally. Um, but what's interesting is if you look further into the data, uh, moderate Democrats are split 
So um, if we translate that into like looking at Rhode Island, we do have a lot of moderates. So it would be really interesting to get some polls to see how public feel about it. Don't take my 2005 Camry away. I'm going to keep driving that thing. (laughs) Can I just tell you my 2001 Camry with 267,000 miles on it, it just failed emissions, so it's got to go. And it's probably time to go, but i got to tell you, with the cost of cars these days, that's going to be an issue for some people with older cars. Yeah, no doubt. Look, it's premature to mandate the end of, of gas-powered vehicles. Right now, if you have to make a 300-mile trip, it's pretty much, it's very difficult to do it in an EV because you're going to have to charge, recharge somewhere, and that can be a challenge. If you're only going locally, you can charge it in your garage, it works. For anybody who's going to use their vehicle for a longer trip, uh, we're not ready. The infrastructure is not in place to handle that yet. I'm personally considering an EV. Uh, We travel to Albany a lot. It's 200 miles. You know, you're you're bumping into range anxiety when you get up to trips of that that, uh, length. Uh, And I think that, look, we live in a small state. We live in a small region. Any sort of blanket prohibition, like you can't buy a new car here, doesn't mean you can't go buy one somewhere else and bring it here. So, you know, I, I look at, I see this legislation as more of a uh, aspirational type thing as opposed to something that can really make a big difference. Right. But now. it's also it's a good for it's a first step and it's a message that we're moving that way. It's interesting what you said about the the industry buy-in because I had heard a, a podcast earlier in the month that said you know it's that 200 miles you're worried about 250 miles if they could get it up to five or six hundred miles and that's that technology is probably going to evolve soon, right? Right, and I mean that's what we would expect, and we would expect to see the cost of these vehicles to drop um, and and with this um, uh, this plan this this ban it's going to increase well the, the goal is to increase the supply in the state right um, but the I think there's there's some concerns about um, I think there needs to be maybe a goal to raise awareness about the importance of electric vehicles and and thinking about the usage of electricity too within the state. And are the grids prepared if we want to see an increase in usage of electric vehicles? um, What kind of updates do we need to see locally and across the state? That's an issue. The goal is to reduce greenhouse emissions. Uh, electricity um, is a major contributor to greenhouse uh, emissions. Right. How do you manufacture the electricity? Exactly. So that's right. where we want. We would like to see probably what's um, Rhode Island political leaders. What are their? What would they like to do in um, producing electricity in a way where it's the focus is on renewable resources like wind and um, solar. Yeah, to get back to your original point, Jim, I mean, this does seem like a bold move by by the governor, and a lot will change with technology between now and 2035. You know, the, the uh, politics of it, though, is interesting that this is by executive, in effect, I guess, the executive order, right? And a lot of people are like, should the legislature be voting on this? Uh, you know, maybe that's an in-the-weeds question. It's interesting that it's falling on DEM. So I'm sure DEM's going to get an earful when they have that hearing in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, absolutely. The politics of it? <laughs> Everything's political these days, and uh, uh, it seems like whether the sky is uh, blue or light blue becomes an ideological battle. So, yeah, you know, people are going to fight about it. Uh, I prefer a lighter government hand than a heavier government hand in general. And 
I think whatever we pass now is going to have to be modified <laughs> before we get to 2035. Well, it's going, so, yeah. obviously, you yeah. think of where you were 12 years ago and how yeah. quickly it went. Uh, quickly, anybody have hybrid or EV here you're considering one? Thinking about it right now, yeah. My wife has a hybrid. Yeah, likes it? Yes. I had a Prius at one point. We're considering maybe another hybrid. I'm not trying to shame you here. I'm just <laughs> curious because if you take the snapshot poll, where are we? Right. All of us need to get. Well, I think um, that Pew Research poll that I mentioned, there was a lot of support for incentives to purchase electric vehicles. So if we see tax rebates, if there's um, more of like, uh, or excuse me, tax credits and rebates from the state, federal government, then that may incentivize individuals to purchase It's the carrot vehicles. rather than the stick. Right. Obviously. Okay, there are dozens of bills pending before the uh, General Assembly about the way you vote and election laws. A lot of these come up every year. Some of them are new. I had a chance to sit down with newly elected, uh, newly inaugurated uh, Secretary of State Greg Amore. He is interested in a couple of these bills. He's behind uh, half a dozen of them. Here's a little of my conversation with him. There have been a lot of bills on voting and elections filed, and you have a handful that you've had filed on your behalf. So let's start with same-day registration. Sure. So same-day registration was part of the bigger Let Rhode Island Vote package, but not passed in the last legislative session. And the interesting part about same-day voter registration in Rhode Island is it requires a constitutional change, right? So it's embedded in the Rhode Island Constitution that the 30-day is the limit. So we would have to have a, a, a referendum question go to the people of Rhode Island who would then determine whether or not that would be removed and same-day voter registration would be an option. And at that point, the General Assembly would determine what that actually looks like. The establishment of the 30-day window, and in some states it's 20, Massachusetts is 10, that establishment was really based on uh, bureaucracy, the ability of paper to move from one place to another. Now with the central voter registration system, that barrier no longer exists. There's really no reason we can't register folks the day of the election. And it's important to understand that that wouldn't take place at a polling place. That would take place at the city or town hall or a singular designated place where people would register and vote at that same place. So poll workers who only work every two years would not be burdened with a same-day registration and vote. You want to move the primary up? We do. We, we, have a, we have a problem with the primary, and that is we're the last primary or the second-to-last primary every year. Um, and because we're so close to the general, we bump into the, um, the Federal MOVE Act, which requires us to send overseas military ballots uh, to folks 45 days ahead of the general election. How long has that MOVE back been in, a, in effect? 1993. Because I haven't heard anything until now. Well, we've, we've just been skating on thin ice until now. And just getting by every year? I think what, what has really uh, drawn my attention is that elections are being contested now. And if elections are litigated or there are multiple recounts, now you're going to push, push that result, the certification, off to the point where we're not going to be able to get those ballots out. And if we disenfranchise uh, one of our overseas military personnel, that's, that's just not acceptable. For my full interview with Secretary Mori, you can visit the Rhode Island PBS YouTube page. And full disclosure, some of you know, but many of you do not know, Secretary Mori is my brother-in-law. So that's what we call a full Rhode Island. <laughs> Ian, I, you know as a reporter, kind of your worst nightmare. but Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and the thing I'm most struck by is what Secretary Mori said about how elections are contested now and how that could screw up the timing of how we've traditionally had primaries in September and the general election in November. There are other good 
good reasons to move the primary to April or something like that. I mean, Ken, who's been a candidate in the past, well knows what a scramble it is between the primary and then a short time later. And we, it, I'm sorry, and we saw some of the contested races last fall, right? Right, absolutely. And, you know, that tells us a lot about where we are as a nation. But, I mean, just in terms of good government, I think there's a case to be made to have the primary in April. There can be a more thought-out, methodical approach by candidates and the media to covering issues and candidates when there's a more uh, a lapse of a time between the primary and the general election. Yeah, I, look, as a two-time gubernatorial candidate, uh, I have been just talked a lot about the fact that our seven-week general election is silly uh, compared to a year and a half devoted to the primary, at least at the statewide level for those races. Uh, it's not enough time to raise the money. It's not enough time to get the message out. Uh, for that reason alone, we should back up our primaries at least, I would, I would say, June or May. That's where the bulk of the states tend to do their primaries. We are extremely late in the session. And, you know, for that alone, that, that's really the right way to go. I know the General Assembly doesn't like it because now they're going to do their business and have to worry about running their primaries at the same time. But look, our laws aren't about their comfort. Our laws need to be about doing what the right thing is to do. But they pass our laws. They do, and I have <laughs> so, a big problem with how yeah, that Well, works. you'd have yes. to have, well, it's an interesting <laughs> question because a lot of states do it in May or June, but you might have a session where every other year, the election year, it's kind of a short, you know, it's more of a budget session type thing. This is fascinating from a political science standpoint. Right, right. And um, I, I think that is a concern about the General Assembly being in session in the busiest time of, of the, the session, of, of having these primaries, that I would say a, a, an earlier date, like April or May, might be worthwhile, especially because the General Assembly members are part-time. So this is a lot on their plate. Um, and I, I, I would definitely agree to Secretary Mori's um, push for same-day registration. I think that this would definitely increase uh, young adult turnout um, in the, the elections. And that's, at least that's what the data shows, is that same-day registration does increase um, young adults' participation. I think that's important in a democracy. You have issue with that. I do. Uh, you can't possibly properly vet a brand new registration made the day of the election at a location that doesn't have the secure electronic availability of Social Security Administration data, drive motor vehicle data. Uh, it's, it's, I get the, I get the drive and desire to be able to bring people into the process as much as you can, but you also have to ensure that the integrity of the process doesn't suffer with the access. There's a balance between everything. And what if the technology met what you're talking about? Conceptually, do you have an issue? Do you have a problem with same day? Because you can do it in the presidential Look, election. There, may, there are very few people who know as much about election data as I do. And I know for a fact that many states struggle with executing the federal laws that require them to do certain things with new registrations, including bumping those registrations against motor vehicle databases, against the Social Security Administration database. You don't want that electronic access to those sensitive databases available on election day in either school gymnasiums or even in town halls um, because it represents a security risk to those databases. So I think you have to take a step back and you have to ask, 
how many people avail themselves of this mechanism and is the enhanced risks that come with this mechanism worth it? And also, if someone wakes up on election day and says, holy mackerel, there's an election today, <laughs> I would argue maybe they're not the most informed voters in the first place and maybe there's something going on there. Uh, you know, I, I think there has to be reasonable limits to what we can do. The 10 days isn't just about bureaucratic paperwork. The 10 days is allowing the mechanism to do what it's supposed to do to vet the registration and ensure that the voter is properly qualified to vote. I think Ken makes some very good points, and 10 days is not uh, certainly not an, an onerous requirement. I thought it was interesting what he said, that it's in the Constitution, the 30 days on moving the primary. I didn't realize that. So you'd have to go through a whole constitutional, whatever you want to vote on that. And can I just say, in sure. terms of amending the Constitution, if we're going to change our Constitution, it's in there for a reason. let's right? get the line item veto done first before we start doing some of these other uh, uh, things that, that we need to, to amend the Constitution for. The Again, self-interested politicians doing what's convenient for them as opposed to doing what's right for everybody. The other thing he talked about was a couple of things that didn't make the interview, but you can see the full interview um, that we post online. He talked about being able to remain unaffiliated in a primary. So you know how it goes now. You're unaffiliated, and that's the vast majority of voters. You go in, you have to de declare Democrat or Republican, and then if you want to remain unaffiliated, you have to sign the little form. Some people forget that, that that would happen automatically. What do you think yeah, about that? Yeah, that seems like a, a perfectly fine idea. It is a little bit of an extra step that voters have to take to disaffiliate every two years or every four years, depending on how often they vote. And to me, that seems like a no-brainer. Yeah. I know so many people who uh, filed their disaffiliation papers and claimed they weren't disaffiliated. It, it's a mess. It doesn't serve any valid purpose at this point that I can perceive from a co conduct of election standpoint. Uh, I think that the, you should, we have, an, we have open primaries. You shouldn't have to disaffiliate and reaffiliate re to participate. Because in if those you forget primaries. the next time you go, you want to vote in the yeah, other one, you can't exactly. do it. What about that, the affiliation? I don't see why that would be a problem to just not um, have individuals go in and have to, and they don't have to re disaffiliate at once they leave. Right. Just to make it easier, make yeah. it easier for people to vote, yep. um, and unaffiliated voters, and uh, maybe it would allow more unaffiliated voters to go out and and um, and participate. Um, but there's there may be concerns by Republican Party, Democratic Party about um, it still is, you know, one step in giving the, the parties a little bit of, of a power that you do have to declare, you know, which party you want to you want to vote in for the primary. So you may get some pushback from the party leaders. The other finally, before we move on um, early voting, we've had that for a couple of sessions now. It's 20 days. It's going to continue to be 20 days. I wonder if you think there are some critics who have said that's a little long, maybe 20 days is fine. You know, buyer, be voter beware if you cast a ballot and then something happens. Your thought, let's go down the line. Your thought on 20-day early voting? I think it's it's fine. It, it makes sense. And um, why not allow more accessibility to voting, provide that flexibility? What do you I think, think Emily's exactly right. I couldn't say it better than she did. Ken, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I have two issues with it. The first, as a candidate, you have to craft your final message. Your final message is expensive, and you, you have to time it right. It's very hard to time your final message inside this squishy 20-day window, uh, especially when 
debates haven't happened yet, but final debates and everything, there, there's a crescendo to the messaging that happens in, in the flow of a campaign. And the 20-day early voting window really plays with your ability to ensure that the voters have all the information they need before they cast their ballots. That's number one. Number two, across the country, we have uh, windows of different sizes. The states do, do things very differently. And there are challenges with early voting, particularly if you vote early and then pass away before the election. There is a, 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 a there are tremendous variability. Some states disallow those votes. Other states allow those votes. Um, and at some point, when is early voting big enough that it becomes voting from the grave as opposed to a ballot that's actually cast uh, you know, properly you know, for, for the vote? If, you have, if we have a 45-day voting window at some point, there's, there's limits, right? And I, and I think we have to really have a conversation about what makes the most sense. To me, a reasonable window would be a week. One-week window, if you can't manage to vote either by mail or within the early voting window within, with, you know, within that time, uh, I think there's there's bigger challenges, but involved, also to right? include a full weekend with that. A full weekend, absolutely. Yeah. To Ken's yeah. point, uh, we can remember in the Democratic gubernatorial primary last year, Helena Folks was closing on Dan McKee, Nellie Gorbea was losing support, and there were probably a number. You know, we can be sure there were a number of votes uh, that were cast earlier. That whether it would have changed the outcome, who knows? But the the margins would have been a little bit different, at least. Just final question. So if I vote, let's say early voting, I vote October 25th, and I die October 20th. What does Rhode Island law say about that? Uh, Rhode Island allows it. I don't believe they have a law that specifically says that it's allowed. 12 states allow it. 17 states disallow it. 3,500 votes in Michigan were disallowed in 2020 because the voters voted by mail then died before the election. And the rest of the states, 21 states, have no laws and they don't address the situation at all. Ken, I would be remiss if we didn't mention you were in the news a lot the last couple of weeks. I know you can't talk a lot about it, but Ken, uh, well, you you tell us your involvement in the, uh, the aftermath of the Trump campaign yeah. and the recent subpoena you got. Yeah, I, uh, uh, extremely briefly, I was uh, asked and I performed some analytics for the Trump campaign investigating whether there was voter fraud attached to the 2020 election. Uh, I am not talking about any of the specifics of what I had to turn over to the Department of Justice. I was subpoenaed by Jack Smith's Department of Justice uh, for all of the findings that uh, I had produced as part of that work. Um, the Washington Post broke a number of stories that leaked some details about what was there and what I confirmed to the Post was that uh, I found nothing uh, that showed that any form of substantial voter fraud uh, had been out there, uh, and certainly none that was sufficient to change the course of any statewide election uh, that was being contested. I think if you ever need anybody to keep a secret, it's Ken Block. <laughs> yeah. He'll take it. You sat on that for two and a half years. Yes. Yeah. And more, more importantly, my kids sat on it. That's, uh, that so, is amazing. Yeah. All right, let's do this. I do want to get to a CD one, but let's uh, do outrage and or kudo. Emily, let's begin with you this week. So it's the end of the semester at University of Rhode Island, so I want to congratulate all the graduates at URI and all the colleges across the state. And we were talking off camera. What This was your first year, really, that was kind of the pandemic was in the rearview mirror. What was that like as a professor? Right. It was very nice to get back to normal, um, see the students' faces in the classroom and be able to interact more with them. Yeah, Amen, what do you have? I had a great bottle of wine at dinner this past weekend and I really wanted to go buy it. So I went online, I found a case that I wanted to buy and I put all my information in and I hit enter and it said, well, we can't ship to Rhode Island. I went, ah, 
I found a friend who lived in Massachusetts and I asked if I could send it to him and he said, sure, you can go ahead and do that. When I, by the time I come back to it, the wine wasn't available. I went to a different website. I was able to find the same case I, and it did allow me to ship to Rhode Island. We have a law in Rhode Island that says you cannot ship wine in from out of state. But we, our borders are close to neighboring states, so you can clearly send it, you can clearly send it to somebody else and go get it. Or more importantly- Would he have, would he have been charged with transporting illegal goods over state lines? <laughs> I, I, Were I you believe, putting your I friend in danger? Shipper, the, 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 the people who ship it in can, can be in trouble, but it's, there are websites who will gladly ship to Rhode Island. There are other websites who say, no, we can't do it. Right? And the problem is our General Assembly is owned by special and narrow interests. In this case, it's the, the liquor and beer distributorships who got this terrible law passed that's probably unconstitutional when it comes to interstate commerce and interfering with interstate commerce. And what are we doing? Right? We're a tiny state whose borders are porous. It's time to like it's time to just clean up a lot of really bad laws. This is a terrible law that's driven by special interests. And for the wine lovers among us who really would just like to order a case and not have to jump through hoops to go get it, come on. Do you have to drink water that night? What'd you drink? <laughs> I had some I had some other wine. So yeah, okay. it's good to know. Can you not go thirsty? <laughs> Ian, I have a kudo and an outrage. Kudos to another regular panelist on this program, Steph Machado, who's moving from WPRI to the Globe, Rhode Island. She does an excellent job, and we all congratulate her. Uh, the outrage, uh, no surprise this week that when Donald Trump was part of a CNN forum in New Hampshire that he persisted in making a lot of lies about the 2020 election. The, the worrisome thing is how the audience was stock full of Republican and independent voters in New Hampshire who were laughing at inappropriate times and who buy into this idea, of this false idea of a stolen election. I mean, you can choose, you're welcome to your own opinion, but you can't choose your own facts, and this is a worrisome trend in American politics. Yeah, I'm not sure who at CNN when they were sitting around the table thought any of that would be a good idea, but that's another topic for another day. Let's just quickly, we got a couple of minutes left. Uh, CD1, it was in the early stages last time we had you on. It's been kind of quiet. Um, what's your assessment on where that race is right now? Yeah, um, I think we should pay attention to who's fundraising. Um, and we have Gabe Amo, who um, is, is someone I think we should be paying attention to, who um, will, will have um, the ability to fundraise. Um, and then we have, uh, you know, our, our other candidates that we've talked about who have the name recognition, um, like Lieutenant Matos, Lieutenant Governor, excuse me, Mantos, um, Senator Cano, um, so the Councilor Gonsalves. We, I've seen uh, his name a lot in the in the news as well. Um, but Aaron Rangenberg. So I think he's also trying uh, has has made some headlines uh, with discussions of impeachment of Clarence Thomas. What's it going to take to break out of the pack in this race? It's a gigantic pack. I don't think anyone's going to break out. I think you're going to see the winner winner squeak by. With, with 10,001 vote. Right. I mean, look, this is this is part of the problem with our political system right here right now. Uh, the primaries with unbalanced general elections where the Republicans are really a, a more or less an electoral non-factor, uh, the Democratic primaries become the determining factor of who's going to win a race. Not a lot of people participate in the primaries. Turnout's miserable in the primaries. Uh, you have your more extreme voters participating in the primaries as opposed to the general election population who don't share 
the primary voters' views. Uh, I think that the process deserves us in a great many ways. And in this circumstance, there aren't, there isn't tremendous name recognition. There are some with more name recognition, uh, recognition than others. The big names stayed out of this race. You get the last 30 seconds. Yeah, for all the interest in the large field, I mean, the candidates have been very quiet in trying to seize on any issues. Until this week, Aaron Regenberg put out a statement calling for the impeachment of Clarence Thomas. Ken accurately pointed out on Twitter that there's 0.0 chance of that happening. But this is a way for Regenberg to try and differentiate. That plays to his base, right? Exactly. And it's, it's kind of a value statement and people who are more liberal in the CD1 electorate probably like to hear that from Regenberg and Gonsalves put out something about not taking contributions from fossil fuels. That's a much more subdued kind of issue. Regenberg is savvy when it comes to politics. I think there of the 15 or 16 candidates, there are a few who are in the top tier and he's one of them. Okay, Kavos, that is it for this week. Thank you for joining us, Ken. Good to see you and Ian and Emily. Come back here next week and we will have the full wrap-up of the week's events and, of course, all the analysis to boot. Come back here next week as the Lively Experiment continued. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by... Hi. I'm John Hazen White, Jr. For over 30 years, a lively experiment has provided insight and analysis of the political issues that face Rhode Islanders. I'm a proud supporter of this great program and Rhode Island PBS.